0: welcome to Shelf Esteem. I'm Trudy Morgan Cole and this is the podcast where I talk to interesting people about books that they find interesting. And this month we are uh, happy to be continuing the policy of getting back to having conversations with guests who don't live in my house not that i mind the guests who do but uh it's great to be talking to a wider variety of people and two uh, fabulous fellow writers who joined me on this episode uh joanne soper cook a mystery writer who does her own forensic experiments She may have said investigations, but I like to think of her as doing experiments. And a guest who's been on before, but I'm always happy to have back again, uh, the fabulous Michelle Butler Hallett, history nerd and author of Constant Nobody, This Marlowe, and many others. Uh, And we had a great conversation about books beginning, as always, when I asked, what have you been reading lately that's left a big impact on you?
1: Joanne? Um... I've just finished reading, and I'm probably not going to pronounce her name correctly, Olga Tukaricuk. Uh She's Polish, and I'm no good with Polish names, so I apologize to her. A novel called Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. Ooh. And, Isn't it a great it's title? It's a fantastic I love title. title. The title just takes all the boxes. She's a Polish author, and of course it's in English translation because I don't know Polish. And it's a sort of a murder mystery, but not really. It's about how the wild animals in a certain locale in Poland get sick of being hunted and decide to start hunting humans. Ooh! And it's it's got a touch of magical realism. I loved it so much, and it's been turned into a film called Spoor, um, starring one of my favorite uh, Polish actors, uh, Andrzej Kanopka. And I haven't seen the film yet. I've seen the trailer for it. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a fantastic novel because it's got a real story. The people that are in it are people that you grow to care about, but it's actually making a statement about our stewardship of the environment huh. and the world around us and, and other life forms. I oh, loved it. Fascinating. Loved it. It's good.
0: Interesting correspondence there because I had never heard of Alga Tokarcha
1: maybe maybe, maybe. Um, I'll go with that I had not heard
0: of her until a couple of weeks ago and then somebody recommended her book which I think is, was out in 2018 but it's just out in the English translation The Books of Jacob yes and that's one that ticks all the boxes for me because yeah. it's got like weird religious mysticism yeah. cult stuff Eastern yeah. European history and, yeah. bring uh, it on bring yeah it. really yeah. bring it on but it's a tome it's a thousand pages whoa not an easy read doorstop and I had it from the library as an ebook, and I read a lot of ebooks. But this was a disadvantage for two reasons. One, because it's the sort of book where you really need to be able to flip back and go, "Oh, is that the same guy?" Because it has like a cast of thousands. Uh-huh. And then the other thing is an ebook from the library. Unlike a real book from the library, which you can just you know, be a scofflaw, hide it at your house till you're finished and pay the fine when you're done, it disappears off your device. And in two weeks, I got. Two sevenths of the way through this book because it's like a seven seven books within the book, oh so, I, so I and so then I had to put a hold on it again because a lot yeah. of people want it. So I, I'm going to be reading that in segments as it yeah. reappears at the library. But it's fascinating. She yeah. is such a fascinating writer. She is. She's so good. Yeah. Let's check such... this out. Oh yeah. yeah. I yeah. Books of Jacob. I definitely thought of you yeah. as one of the people that I bet Michelle would like this book. Yeah, okay. So it was really interesting to see her other book turn yes. up as, as as the one that you had read. Yeah. I don't know anything, didn't know anything about that one, but I love the the title, Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. It's just such a, such a great title. It is. Yeah, Michelle, what have you been reading lately? A book
2: by Dorian Linsky called Ministry of Truth, and it's a biography of the novel, 1984. Oh, interest! It is. I thought it was a really interesting way of looking at it. We we were talking about so- social history a moment ago. Mm-hmm. He spends the first half of the book um, putting Orwell into his in, yeah, um, looking at Orwell in his life and his social context, reasons why he changed his name, what was going on, how the war influenced him as as through his war diaries. Uh huh. Um, not really a potted biography of Orwell, as much as just just way more context of his life. Mm-hmm. And the second half of the book is about how the novel has been received over the decades, right? And how um uh, how people are using Orwellian and mm. Big Brother and all and, and all the rest of it.
0: And it's uh, it was really good. Oh, yeah, I, bet. I, bet. I bet. Yeah, it and it's so interesting now how everybody like 1984 or Orwellian is everyone's go-to for anything they don't like the government yeah. does. <laughs> <Which> is... <laughs> And I've I've
2: I've never come across anybody trying to write a biography of a book before. I that thought it was a really cool way of, of looking
0: at it. Yeah. I've I've the one book I've read that's sort of like that, but it's not really a biography of the book. It's a memoir of a book. Um, is the book, I think it's called My Life in Middlemarch, mm-hmm. which is the author writing about, I can't remember the author's name now, writing about how she keeps coming back to George Eliot's Middlemarch at different points mm-hmm. in her life. Oh, cool. And, yeah. and at what it's meant to her at different times. So I thought that that's an interesting approach, but it's still not quite the same as a biography of a book. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is really interesting. That is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. cool. Um, what's a book that has had... A big influence on you, over time, over the years, maybe been like a, a big, uh, I guess one of the books of your life. Again, I'll go. I'll start with you, Joanne, because I know that. Of the of the three of us, you're the one who did the most preparation for this for this conversation, as uh, opposed to I always go into it just winging it. But
1: I'm just I, I'm uh, seriously I'm the person who goes around the house straightening up the towels so they're all hanging the exact same way. <laughs> oh, please don't go in the bathroom no. while you're here. <laughs> is... It drives my husband crazy, and he 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 hangs them askew on purpose to oh, make me nuts. Just to, just to yeah. drive you nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, secrets <laughs> of a happy marriage. Oh, seriously, normally. seriously, 38 years and counting. Okay. Uh messing up the towels. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I think for me, um, anything at all by F. Scott Fitzgerald, of course I did Gatsby uh, mm-hmm. in high school and then again in university when mm-hmm. I did um, my first undergraduate degree, we did uh, American 20th century American literature, but his short stories uh, just hit such a chord with me and I keep coming back to them again and again and again, and... You never read the same story twice, even if you're reading the same story twice. Mm -hmm. Uh Like, you can read a story like Absolution, and uh, you pick up certain things from it, and you go back and read it again, and you get other things. In that way, he's a lot like James Joyce with Dubliners. Mm. This, you know, there's always these layers and layers and layers. Um, I read the collection of short stories All the Sad Young Men back in the 90s when I had never read Fitzgerald before except for high school and that was just a fleeting thing mm-hmm. and it, it just struck at something in the heart of me that um, he understood people so well and not just he's always been described as writing about the rich and the famous and the yeah. glamorous and the glitzy um, but he writes about all sorts of people from all different strata of society and picks out things about them that I find absolutely fascinating Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's he rings true every single time mm. with his characterizations so they're not just characters they're people to me anyway that I think look I could go to the supermarket and turn around and there would be you know the little boy Rudolph from Absolution
0: uh-huh.
1: um, you know or the priest and just I just think they're so brilliant they're just mm. so brilliant and I keep reading them over and over and over again I don't think I've ever read his short oh, stories oh his short stories are yeah, so brilliant I've probably only read the Great Gatsby, yeah. honestly. And the stories are funny. There's one in particular, there's one called The Camel's Back, uh-huh. about a guy who tries to rent a costume for a costume party, and the only thing that's left is a camel. <laughs> and so he gets this stranger to be the back end. I think he's a cabbie or something. Uh-huh. Go to this fancy dress party where it's like white tie and tails, and he doesn't realize this. And one line in particular that I always think about, uh, Fitzgerald is describing this young gentleman's gym, a gymnasium that had been there, and he said it was written, it was uh, run by a man named Mr. Snorky. But Mr. Snorky had long since given up, gone away, and died. <laughs> and it just, every time I read it, it's unsnorting oh, with that's, laughter. That's great. That's so, so good.
0: What about you, Michelle? And I think this is, you and I have talked about this thing, this kind of thing, on previous episodes of the podcast, but I feel like sometimes people have different answers at different times. So if I were to ask you today, um, what's a book that's had a big influence on you? What would
2: you say? I'm going to stick with a uh, theme here and say 1984, which mm-hmm. I first read when I was uh, 14 mm-hmm. in the year 1984. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I was in grade eight, and I remember we had this uh, reading challenge thing going on one week in the fall where the, the announcement would come on in the PA, you had to drop everything, and I was delighted because it kept happening in my math class. <laughs> but this <laughs> one, I, I finished the novel for the first time. It was I was we were supposed to be doing a. French lab work, mm-hmm. and uh, and there, and I, re- I remember just holding the book, and my hands were shaking, and my jaw was open. And you know, the teacher asked me, "Are you all right?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading George Orwell, and yeah. I, I read it several times again the following summer. I reread it once or twice every year, yeah, because um, I, I I love the story. I love the I love its comments on power and the Soviet system, and it's, it's just amazing how Orwell could see through so much mm-hmm. um, when many left lefty Western intellectuals didn't or were in denial. Yeah. Uh, Orwell, of course, had been in Spain and had NKVD on his tail, so he, mm-hmm. he, he knew a few things.
0: He wasn't idealistic about Stalin. Not at all. <laughs> yeah.
2: And uh, and also his prose. I keep studying that that famous windowpane prose, and he makes it look so easy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's even clearer in his essays than it is in his fiction, just how good he was with the English language and how much he loves it. And sometimes I just read it to take the pleasure in that. Mm-hmm. But it, um, it has meant different things to me over the years. like When, when, when I was... 14 predictably it was like oh yes we've got to fight against repression you know all the repression in my junior high school <laughs> mm. <I> mean, <laughs> certainly like... comparable to a stalinist dystopia <laughs> yeah mm. and then as i got a bit older and started to, to understand the uh, the history of the ussr a bit more i was like wow this is really something and then i started to see the universals of of of, of the of the human condition it yeah. it in one way, it matters very much where and when he said it, mm-hmm. and in other ways, it doesn't, because he's he's hit the hit hit that sweet spot of those characters could only do what they're doing in that specific setting.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yet it's all universal.
0: Yeah,
2: you know, yeah. and and I don't think you have to look very hard to see the influence of uh, of nineteen eighty four on uh, on on my last novel, Constant Nobody. Yeah. Oh, for sure, yes, yeah, 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 I definitely got that when I read it. Yeah, there's a couple of deliberate nods in there. Yeah, uh-huh. I definitely got that when I read it.
0: Yeah, and they both have that wonderfully claustrophobic feeling of a of, you know, a totalitarian state yes. that you're always in a room. Yes. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Not a lot of wide open spaces. So, in the, in the current times, I kind of want to ask you, Michelle, since we since you brought up 1984 twice and we've talked about how people are constantly referencing it, you know, how does it read to you or how does it come across to you when people for example, refer to it being Orwellian, that they're required to wear a mask in public places or or whatever, you
1: know. I will say, by the
0: way, this is going to come out later, but we are recording this in March, uh, what, about a week before the province drops most or all, you know, um, uh, COVID-19 mandates. So that's a very, you know, hot topic, I guess, right now. But as someone who's read the book deeply and, and engaged with it,
2: I would say that they haven't read the novel, and if they say they have, they haven't understood it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, there's a huge... Um, I, I, I guess what we could blame some of this on the um, um, Reagan, Reagan and, uh, Reaganomics and Thatcher approach to things, you know the yes. 80s, that greed was good. I mean, there, oh, there, yeah. there's been such an erosion of thinking about public health and thinking about the good of others. Being asked to wear a mask it means you have to think of somebody else. That's it's
1: communism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm astonished
2: <laughs> how much resistance there there has, has been to it. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a piece of fabric on your face. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, you're, you're not being sent to the gulag. Like, your loved ones have, haven't been ripped from you. No. Nobody's shelling your house. No.
0: Yeah.
2: And uh, is, is it really that bad? Is it really that... I, I'm j- I've just been astonished yeah. by the resistance to it and the characterization of it as something that's been forced on you. Being afraid of vaccines, I can... Understand that a little more, although I, I would say the science is there. Just come on, yeah, smarten up. Uh, but no, I, 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 think that's got a, the characterizing a, a mask mandate as, as Orwellian has much more to do with um, with a certain amount of, of selfishness, which we have glorified in in the last forty years that, yes. than yeah, yeah. it will ever have to do with George Orwell. Absolutely,
0: yeah. And that whole that that we're losing that whole idea of of society and doing things for the public good. Yeah, yeah. that there's
1: a community you're a part of. Mm-hmm. No, it's all me, me, me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm aboard. Pull up the ladder.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I got, I got into another Twitter fight with somebody the other <laughs> you day. You did <laughs> do that you so too? much. You <laughs> too? I did that
1: so much, and then I had to
0: step away. Uh, but, you know, the, this was the person who said specifically about the... Shocking an Orwellian decision to keep mask mandates in the schools for an additional, what, one month after they're, they're gone in, in, in the province as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this person was complaining about it. I was saying, maybe it you know, might be a good thing if you have, you know, prickly you probably have teachers and staff who are mm-hmm. immunocompromised, that kind of thing. And uh, this person said, it's not the responsibility of the majority to coddle the minority.
2: I've heard that an awful lot. And that's, that's the polite, yeah. yeah. And that's eugenics talking.
0: It really is. It's yeah, absolutely is. Eugenics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that, that taking care of one another or looking out for other people is coddling. Just,
2: yeah! wow yeah yeah that's that's been an ugly time i um I'm, my mental health has taken a real knock since yeah. the pandemic began mm-hmm. precisely because of just how widespread eugenics thought is i absolutely I, I was obviously very naive but i had no idea that so many people considered it common sense that you know um, the strong must go on the weak will have to go well, they can stay home
1: yeah mm. oh my yes yeah yeah, yeah. Or so, just die. Yeah. But it's a mild variant. Yes, it's because so mild. One All of these my, mild deaths that we've had. One of my students actually said to me, but it's not like people are dying from COVID. And I Ugh. wanted to ask her, what planet is it that you're on? Because it's not this one. Yeah. I mean,
0: six million recorded deaths. It's never recorded. mind how many unrecorded
1: yeah. ones. Yes. And then...
0: And then you know, oh, but they were elderly or had underlying conditions. So it's okay so, to throw them on so the
2: bus. So you've just told me who you consider expendable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I and I get the feeling that people who are saying these things don't really know what they're saying. No, no. People no. are just repeating lines yeah. that they've that heard,
1: they've
0: heard think, yeah. to a large extent. Yeah.
2: And I, I, I think that taps in, in into something I've often called the arrogance of the healthy.
0: Mm. That unless oh, yeah. you've been ill
2: yourself or or you've watched somebody who's ill, it's really easy to just to just think that sickness doesn't matter. Exactly, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Because it's not going to happen to you. Yeah. yeah. Until it does. Until exactly. it does.
0: Which is a little bit of a digression from Orwell, but, you know, maybe not that much. <laughs> because I, I do think the whole, the whole misuse of, of Orwell and uh, 1984 is just so telling about what people see as oppression. Mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm.
0: Um, what is a book that was a favorite of yours when you were younger, when you were a child, or when you were a teenager?
1: This is going to sound really strange, um, but it's a war novel. Hmm. We were assigned The Guns of Navarone when I was in, I think it was grade 11, by Alistair MacLean, mm-hmm. And um, I looked at the cover and sort of groaned to myself and said, oh no, it's a boring old war book. It's the kind of thing my grandfather reads. Uh, bang, bang, manly stuff. Manly yes. stuff, yeah. And then... Um, I started reading it, and I just fell in love with the characters. Really? Um, it's about a group of saboteurs who have to destroy a Nazi gun emplacement in Greece in Uh order to evacuate these Allied soldiers who were stranded on an island. And supposedly, it's an unassailable position that no one can get in there to destroy these huge guns, their Mm -hmm. anti-aircraft guns. Um... And they send in this guy who is the best rock climber in the world from New Zealand. And um, they, they manage, you know, between the jigs and the reels to get in there and get the job done. And I loved that because who doesn't love a story where the good guys win? <laughs> it is yeah. nice. That's, once that's, in a while. that's yeah. nice once in a while, you know? But the other thing I really loved about it was the characterization and the relationships between the men mm-hmm. is, is really what stayed with me. The mountain climber, Keith Mallory, his name is in the book is a best friends with um, a Greek, a colonel in the Greek army whose entire family was slaughtered in the most horrific way imaginable by Nazis when Greece became occupied. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, these men kill people for a living. They're, they're saboteurs. This is what they do. But there is such camaraderie and brother. Like sort of a, a, I hesitate to say bromance and put a modern gloss on it, mm-hmm. but that's what it is. These uh-huh. guys have each other's backs, and there's another guy who's an American who, from what we can infer, seems to have been a doctor at some point, and the the relationships, uh, and the vulnerabilities. And it's really unusual because I've read quite a bit in this particular genre, mm-hmm. and it's it's very rare to see them portrayed as actual people with uh, families that fell prey to the war and with vulnerabilities Mm -hmm. and uh you think okay this guy's the best mountain climber in the world but you know he he's exhausted and and when things go wrong because he's in charge of the mission he blames himself Mm -hmm. in the most excoriating self uh blame and it's it's just really incredible the book left such a a an impression on me Mm
0: -hmm. and i go
1: back periodically and read it i have a couple different versions i have a couple of audiobook versions, and I periodically get the urge to go and read it again, because uh-huh. I just loved it so much.
0: I do I do love rereading a book that's been key at, at mm-hmm. certain times, yeah. and like you say, it's never the same story yeah. twice. Also, I think you got better grade 11 reading of Simon Sinaita, because we got the old man in the sea. Oh, <laughs> oh
1: toxic masculinity for the win. Let's talk about Hemingway. Let's uh, not. Let's not.
0: Let's <laughs> not talk. We, we will not talk about Hemingway <laughs> in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about you, Michelle? What's a book that, when you think back to, you know, sort of formative books or, or books of childhood or youth? I mean, you've already said 1984 you read when you were 14, so I guess that was a formative one for certainly you. Was. For you. Um, another one
2: would be Harriet the Spy, which mm. I read when I was about ten. yes and it was the quirkiest apart from a wrinkle in time. It was the quirkiest book I'd ever read that where the writer obviously respected the intelligence of her audience. Yes. and Harriet yeah. is not easy to like. she's actually a really complex character mm-hmm. and why I've um, that's one I haven't reread in, nearly as often as 1984. But I, I reread it in my 20s, and again in my 30s, and again about f- five years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was really struck by how negligent her parents are, how mm. self-absorbed they are. <laughs> yeah, uh, this, this kid is wandering around, breaking into people's houses to <laughs> write in her journal. Uh, she, there's no consequences for that. The consequences for Harriet are when, are when her friends find her journal and find out what she's written about them. Mm. Uh, she's very blunt to the point of cruelty. Wow. Uh, but Harriet just thinks she's being honest. Yeah. And the, and her nurse, old Golly, with, the, with that amazing lesson, sometimes
1: you have to lie.
0: Mm.
2: And when, mm. when you're 10 years old and it's a, you know, you're a little girl guy like I was and you're trying so hard to be good and get straight A's, mm-hmm. and sometimes I have to lie. Huh. I, that knocked
0: me silly. What badge is that? Oh, exactly. <laughs> is that the old Golly badge? Because I put it next to my poultry farmer badge? <laughs> have we earned the badge for lying? I feel like Harriet could have grown up to be one of these people who wrote a tell-all memoir and now nobody speaks to her anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I have that experience often of reading memoirs and thinking, this is fascinating but is anyone she knows still speaking to her since she wrote (laughs) this? Yeah, that's a great one that was that was one for me when yeah, I was young as well. That. It was really, yeah, really formative.
2: Also taught me a lot about people watching. I never mm. broke into these houses, but I'm, <laughs> yeah. I if I'm at the mall or whatever, I'm terrible for listening to conversations yeah. and just yeah. watching people and trying to figure out what they're up
1: to and Yeah. Yeah, what's their deal? Yeah. <laughs> that couple,
0: how did they end
1: up together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what you can infer from watching them, like looking at uh, an elderly gentleman who has the hems down on his trousers. But the rest of his clothing is very neat and tidy. Well, his wife must have recently died. Yep. The rest of his clothing is fine, but his trousers have the hems down. Yes. she probably always kept them up for him, and he's let them down. And he doesn't, um, know, what do and he doesn't yep. know what to do with them. And he doesn't know what to do with them. Mm, Things yeah. like that.
0: Which is, that's an almost Sherlock, Sherlockian level yeah. of, of people watching to yeah. deduce that much. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, that's partly the writer's imagination, too, is, yeah. is looking at people and projecting stories no. onto them, which, of course, is what Harriet is doing, mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. learning to become a writer. Yeah. If you could live in the world of a book, first of all, would you choose to live in the world of a book? And secondly, what book would you choose to live in the world of? Um, Joanne, you had some thoughts There's on that.
1: There's several. Um, <laughs> living in a different world right now in the age that we're living in... Uh, certainly has its appeal. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, I've read, uh, there's a a fantasy series that I read when I was in high school, um, and the character's name is Thomas Covenant. Mm, I read those when I was in college. And he's a leper, literally, uh, who ends up going into this other alternate realm of existence called The Land. And uh, the first book is called Lord Fowl's Bane, and it's when he first goes into the land, mm-hmm. uh, when he becomes seriously injured um, as a result of his disease. And it's very Tolkien-like. Um, there's, there's all these different humanoid types of creatures that live in the land. There's giants, there's little people, there's everything. And he, unwittingly, is their savior, mm-hmm. or they think he is. Um, because he resembles this um, sort of, of savior like character that, that belongs to their history, mm-hmm. and they think this is who he is. So he's required to do these things that are above and beyond him because he's generally a very selfish man. Yeah, he's kind of an asshole. He's well, an asshole. Tom, Thomas Covenant is a fascinating yeah, character. He is, but books, he's an yeah. asshole. And he, he only thinks about himself. He's one of these I'm-aboard-pull-up-the-ladder guys. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, you're the Messiah. Well, we have a list of things we need you to do here. <laughs> and and the things that he encounters and, and the way reality moves in the land is completely different. It's it's like it's ruled by a completely different set of physics mm-hmm. than life on Earth. Um, when I was about 14, 13, 14... I got really into the King Arthur stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Started reading uh, Tennyson's um, collection Uh of poems. And um, we were doing them in in English. And I I just... Just something about it really struck me. So I started reading everything I could find about King Arthur. And there's a Park Godwin uh, novel called Fire Lord. And it portrays King Arthur as a Roman soldier in Iron Age Britain. Mm. And it's he is tasked with keeping back the Saxon invaders who are, you know, trying to take over the land uh, that, you know, belongs to Rome. Um, And this, of course, is at the tag end of the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire's life in in Britain. Um, And he's so real and human, um, he is taken away for a while by the pits, which in the book are portrayed as almost like hobbits, they're little people that live in houses that they dig out of the, the side of the hill. And they have a whole cosmology of their own to which he is subjected. And they know that he is going to be the high king of Britain. But before he can do that, he has to learn all this, what they call the old ways. Mm-hmm. He has to learn all this magic and, and uh, things that only they know. And it was... It was dark, and it was gritty, because it was talking about war in Roman times, I mean, hacking and slashing, but at the same time, there's this wonderful, magical aspect to it, but the relationships between the characters are quite real. Guinevere Mm -hmm. is, yes, she's beautiful, um, but she's also a spoiled brat who ruins his life, (laughs) and, you know, and all these, and it was just so uh, true to life, but not any life that we would any you know recognize mm-hmm. anymore, and I think the f- the final one, the one I, I loved the best was uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley's The Mists of Avalon. Yes, yeah, uh, that resonated so strongly with me, the whole uh, the whole world, the whole world view of that. Mm-hmm. Again, the cosmology, um, the way that universe was arranged, that it sort of sits on top of our reality. And when she was talking about the island of Avalon, and that. Only certain people could go there, and you had to go beyond the sound of the church bells um, at this monastery uh, in in Britain in order to get there. And you couldn't not everyone could go. It was just I loved it. I loved mm. it so much.
0: I read that's a book I read at a really impressionable age, probably about seventeen or eighteen. Me too and i think what really is interesting is that it was the, that was my first introduction to the arthurian legend like i hadn't read the once and future king or yeah. any of the arthurian stuff yeah. that people I, I was vaguely aware of the story but it was the first actual yeah. book i read and so ever after everything i knew or thought i knew about the arthurian legend was through this sort of yeah. feminist lens yeah. of of uh Marianne zimmer bradley's the Myths of avalon it's yeah. also one of the first books i remember Really, really crying, like just bawling yes. and bawling yes. at it, and, and wow! Yeah, I have to read this. <laughs> oh, you've never read it? No, I haven't. Oh, yeah. I think Marion Zimmer Bradley is one of those writers who's been revealed after her death to have been not a great human being, mm-hmm. um, which is unfortunate. But the book is, yeah, it's really something. It is. Good. Uh, okay. uh, it's. I definitely. I definitely recommend. it. That's one I kind of want to go back and reread yep. and see if it reads to me the same. It I mean, it wouldn't the same as when I was 17, no. but it would be interesting to see how, mm, yeah. with you know, 40 more years of life yeah. experience, how it would, would read to me. Yeah, for but sure. But definitely every impression I had of, of the Arthurian story initially came through that mm. book and uh, and colored the way I saw that legend.
1: The imagery, too, um, is something that has always stayed with me from the, the Tennyson treatment of that and and the once and future king and the park godwin is the lady of the lake and the arm coming up through the water holding excalibur that always gives me shivers Mm. i just i i don't know why because it it just the image of just this hand and and saying you know here is here's what you need and then when he dies bedivere takes the sword back Mm. to the lake so it comes full circle um, yeah, and it's just beautiful. Really I think my beautiful.
0: biggest problem is that I can't picture that beautiful image without thinking the Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in girl, as You <laughs> should say <laughs> the the Lake of you can't go around calling yourself a king just because some watery tart lobs a sword at you. <laughs> so, so, the is... moistened <laughs> loves and <the> tyranny. Yeah. <laughs> Everything I was at my <laughs> second exposure to the Arthurian legend. Was Monty Python <laughs> yeah, the yeah. Grail. And if anything, that covered it. That 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 color. Uh, that was my first. More. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time <laughs> taking it seriously, which is why I actually
2: do want to read some.
0: Yeah, serious, s- serious takes yeah. on the legend. Yeah. Well, right. I, I would recommend Marion Zimmer Bradley. But yeah, once once you've got the Holy Grail in your head, it's very hard. To, it's very There's hard parts to it, yeah. of the legend that are very hard to take seriously. Yeah. yeah. But it's interesting that whole question of because all of yours are. Either fantasy mm-hmm. or sort of historical. That's so historical; it's legendary. Yeah. And I like I love the idea of living in a fantasy world, but not at any of the points that the books I like are set because there's always like war and conflict and terrible things. Mm-hmm. There's a thing in um, in uh, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, which of course I read as a kid, and towards the end, one of the characters from our world says to one of the Narnian characters you know, there always seem to be terrible things mm. happening, and they're like, no, you guys only come when there's terrible things happening. But in between, there's hundreds of years, and he starts telling them all these mm. legends about these times of peace and plenty, and I'm like, that's, I would like to go there yeah. then. I would like to go there when there's not yeah. an adventure and nobody needs me to come save anything. Yep. <laughs> just want to go hang out in a beautiful fantasy yeah. world with naiads and dryads and, you know, yeah. all sorts of magical talking animals, but yeah. not have to save anyone. No, exactly.
1: Ideal. Exactly.
0: Yeah. What about you, Michelle?
1: Would you live in the world of a book if you could?
0: I've been
2: thinking about this and the only one that really appeals to me is uh, is A Wrinkle in Time mm-hmm. because um, because Meg gets to do stuff in so many fantasy and and historical fiction of course you can't escape the fact that as a girl I wouldn't have gotten an education. Yeah. I wouldn't have been allowed to leave the house and would, would have had a pretty rotten time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And um, I if uh, I wouldn't mind uh, H- hanging out, hanging out w- w- with the Murrays. Um Yeah,
0: they're a great family. They are.
2: They're a very loving f- family, and m- Mrs. Doctor Murray is taken just just as seriously as as Mr. Doctor Murray. It's, yes. it's yeah. yeah. It's it's they're a really hopeful bunch, and they accept Charles Wallace, who I th- I think now would would probably be uh, considered neurodiverse. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah,
0: Charles Wallace is definitely.
2: Yeah, others, they know, accept him for exactly the way the way he is and love him regardless. Mm-hmm. There's 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 never any question of, of looking down at him or treating him as, as something mm-hmm. separate, and th- and that family is bound together really strongly. And I and I th- th- every time I reread A Wrinkle in Time, th- I that's what I take away. This crowd love one another so much, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And everything that that Meg is doing, even when she fools it up, it's out of love.
0: Yes, yeah. yeah. And
2: she's facing her own fears and that amazing moment, oh, I can't remember which misses it mrs watson i think gives meg the gift of her faults yeah and she's furious my faults that's what's wrong with me blah 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 blah. Uh, no actually your faults are what's going to save you yeah but meg has to learn that herself mm. and that's really reassuring when you're yeah. 10 11 years old and you're feeling all goofy in your puberty body and yes. you're a smart girl but you're not yes. taken seriously yes. yeah yeah yeah
0: okay. not would... unlike when you're feeling all goofy in your middle-aged postmenopausal body now yes. that i think it is yes. <laughs>
1: Could use my faults sometimes yes, too. when everything starts to slide down and you learn <laughs> that gravity is not your friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is there a book
0: you wish you could get other people to read? And you're not allowed to say 1984
2: again. <laughs> no more Orwell. I've used up all my Orwell for today. Yes. Or Orwell, you're Orwelled out. <laughs> uh,
0: mm-hmm. um, Joanne, again, I'll, I'll, I'll go with you first.
1: I status. read. I came across this novel when I was about 13 um, by an author called Richard Ben Sapir. And the book is called The Far Arena. Hmm. And all my life I've been fascinated with ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. And the premise of this book is that an oil exploration company is drilling in the Arctic. And they unearth a corpse that turns out to be an ancient Roman gladiator. Ooh. <laughs> and he was sentenced to death for something. I can't remember what exactly. And he was marched into the Arctic and uh, like way up in what now we would call Scandinavia Mm -hmm. and left there to die. And what happened was he froze, um, but he's kind of like in suspended animation. So they bring him back and they thaw him out of this massive block of ice and they are able to reanimate him. Mm. And he has to learn to live in the 20th century world. Oh, Oh, wow. wow. And the first time he wanders outside and sees an airplane, he nearly loses his mind. I, I bet he does. It's flying overhead and he just it's going he thinks it's going to eat him. It's going to swoop down he's never you know, he's never of course seen he this before. Mm-hmm. And um, the only person who can really communicate with him is a Catholic nun who speaks Latin with him. Mm. Oh. But her Latin is the Latin of the church, and his is, like, coarse, down-and-dirty street Latin, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. complete with all the swear words, and uh, talking about his wife, whom he misses dearly and and remembers the more uh, intimate, earthier moments with her and his son... Um, but the level of detail about Rome is incredible and the characterization of the gladiator as essentially an arena slave mm. mm-hmm. until you had fought enough successful battles that you could gain manumission. And this is what happened to him in his life. He was successful. He stayed alive in the arena long enough that he was given his freedom mm-hmm. and um, set himself up in business and all this stuff. And at towards the end of the book, she takes him to... Um, Uh, where uh, Vesuvius erupted Pompeii she takes him to Pompeii where the arena is still intact and he shows her how he used to fight and it's such a poignant moment but it's so sad Mm -hmm. because that was his world and it's gone and Mm -hmm. he can never go back and he has to you know continue to live in this world that isn't his Um, and and the book sort of just leaves off. We're not told what happens to him, um, but that he's here now and he has to make the best of it. Mm. Yeah, and I, I just I absolutely loved it. The level of detail about ancient Rome was was just incredible, That's and awesome. how they were just everyday people uh, like everybody else. You know, their their kids went to school. They went and bought bread and they they ate supper. With complained family. about taxes. They complained yeah. about taxes. <laughs> Somebody needed a new pair of shoes, my foot hurts, uh, you know, and it was just so real. Um, and I've been fascinated with Rome ever since. Oh, yeah. Fascinated with that period of Roman history ever since. I'm also fascinated
0: with ancient Rome. And, oh. and there's actually a story from ancient Rome that I would love to write a novel about, but I don't know if I have the time or the Ooh. mental energy to do the level of, like, deep dive into yeah. Roman history that yeah. that you would need to uh, to, to yeah. be able to set a story there. Yeah. But, um, and now I'm looking, at Michelle, because in my mind, this is, I, I think I've said this before, this is one of the things I admire so much about your writing, is, like, you just pick, I'm going to write a book about Soviet Russia. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to write a book about... Uh, Elizabeth in England, and then you just like dive into this time and yeah. place and learn everything about it. And it's, I'm very impressed with that. I <laughs> am as well. I'm
1: amazed with what she does and the, the depth yeah. and the breadth of the research.
0: Yeah, because it's not unusual for an author to go to that level of depth and breadth on one subject, and yeah. that's your subject. Yeah. But to do it, you know, about so Repeatably. many different things. Yeah, it's yeah.
2: just it it's me. a history nerd in me. I I, <laughs> I, I, I love the research. I love. we were talking earlier about social history Mm -hmm. and the details of how everyday people lived what you were talking about I call that texture and that's when the fiction really
1: starts to to work for me too absolutely that's when it starts to come alive Mm -hmm. you can imagine yourself in that time period you can Mm -hmm. imagine yourself walking down the street. Hey, I, I need new shoes today too. You will yeah. kind at of your feet, and you're wearing sandals, and you're wearing a robe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. and and you smell you're, the. Dollars. You can smell. The public toilets that really, <laughs> really stink. So we could smell the olives or we could smell we the public could smell the <laughs> toilets. toilets. It's <laughs> All
0: at once. A great soup sauce. A central <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what great historical fiction does. And all great fiction. But especially uh, historical fiction because it takes you to yeah. where you can never go. The past. Yeah, yeah. Smelling the olives and smelling the public toilets. And <laughs> now <laughs> I have a title for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> <It was great. laughs> olives and public toilets. <laughs> <laughs> the stink that was wrong. <laughs> yeah. So maybe some... Someday I will take that deep dive into Rome yeah. and write the story I want to write about it. But uh, it's it's you know it's so much work to is. to do that it you is. know it's long that long level long. Of, of discovery and recreation yeah. about another another time yeah. and another culture. <clears throat> oh, the dog is making herself heard yes, from outside. She is. I hope Jason hears her and lets her in. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, is there a book that you wish you could get everybody to read?
2: Oh, um, I wouldn't try to force it on anybody, yeah. but I would encourage. I really, really encourage people. Yeah. Um, to read two different two different translations of Beowulf, Seamus mm-hmm. oh, Heaney's, mm-hmm. which is beautiful yes. and poignant and dignified and makes me cry buckets,
0: yes. mm-hmm. and Mariah Headley's. Yes, I've I heard bits of that when before she released it, she had yeah. like people reading segments of it online, oh. and ah, oh, it was very.
2: And powerful. she has written that in the absolute up to the minute current vernacular, and and that oh. old English word what. Um, yes. yeah, um. I don't. I'm, I know. I'm not saying it right. I don't know how Tolkien translated it. Uh, Heaney did it as "so," which mm. was perfect. We're starting the story. Headley is bro. <laughs> yes, yes. And it's yes. such a like a dude poem and, and, we're like, we're, and the boasting scenes are hilarious um, because it's just a bunch of muscular guys saying my dick is bigger than yours they're uh, like I, Klingons or something yeah, yes, totally very, very like, Klingons, yes, yeah, yeah. They are. They're like Klingons actually warrior cultures yeah. shame and
0: honor yeah. and I got a whole new
2: appreciation for yeah. the story yeah. Yeah. Mm. it's like these guys are fun, and, it made, and the vernacular I remember it, my, my husband was very doubtful I said no 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 it's making them more human yeah. Mm, yeah. I, I can see these guys
0: down at the bar yes yeah, right? exactly yeah, yeah. I'm having kind of that experience now reading Emily Wilson's translation of the odyssey, <gasps> yes. which is actually my first time reading through the odyssey. And again, it's one of these that, you know, you pick up the story through being immersed in the culture. Yeah. But it, when I started reading this translation, I was like, Oh yeah, this is the one I want to sit down and read all the way through. Yeah. And that, uh, that translation of Beowulf too, is maybe that'll be my project next year, my classic literary project next year. <laughs> Cause I think it's going to take me a while to get through the odyssey. <laughs> um, I always ask when writers are on the uh, on the podcast as they often are well nobody's been on the podcast often lately for the last <laughs> year but over the life of the podcast but I always ask is there a particular writer or book um that has been influential influential that has been influential on you as a writer and that could be like over your whole career or is there a a book that was influential on you when you were working on a specific project, or anything like
1: that. The when I was writing the Inspector Raft series of Victorian mysteries, Victorian mm. murder mysteries, um, Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, of course, was yeah. what I went to um, for my, I guess, I hate to say source material, but it was, it was a launching pad into mm. the era of Jack the Ripper.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and that whole uh, milieu, that whole worldview. Because we think of the Victorian era as somewhat more modern than the eras that came before it, but in a lot of ways, in contrast to the 21st century, it's hopelessly backward. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, your husband wouldn't discuss money with you because as a woman you couldn't possibly understand, or politics, because you couldn't possibly understand, because you were, you know, the Coventry-Patmore poem, The Angel in the, the House. The Angel in the so, House, yes. Um, and so that was was uh, something that, that really influenced me. That made me want to write a detective in that era, not so much because of Holmes himself, but because of Inspector Lestrade. I always found him really interesting, and I always felt he was given short shrift in the books. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to write a Lestrade-like character who uh, was a smart detective, and, uh, but who had all these uh, peccadilloes and, and failings. And of course, um, the big one for me, uh, because the character is, is homosexual in an era when this was illegal, mm-hmm. um, is that whole La Boucher Amendment where uh, if, you know, you could, well, we know what happened to Oscar Wilde.
0: Right. Yeah. So
1: he has to live by necessity closeted, deeply closeted, um, and reading all about the attitudes towards sexuality in that era. And it was just, you know, at the set, on the one side you had the LaBouchere Amendment, but on the other side you had the proliferation of homosexual brothels and flagellation brothels mm-hmm. and and things like this. Mm-hmm. So that that uh, contrast was really really interesting. But the that's Sherlock nice. Holmes is where that all started. Yeah. Yeah. That's where that all started.
0: That's great. What a great jumping off place to yeah. uh, to do yeah. to to do your own series. Yeah. What about you, Michelle? Any books that you think of? From yourself as a writer, as having been really influential, I'm going to say the collected short
2: stories of Flannery O'Connor. Okay. The first one, the first one I read was "A Late Encounter with the Enemy." I was like 23 or something, and that one's almost a magic realism story. I, would, I remember th- reading this, going, "What am I reading? This is brilliant!" <laughs> I had no idea what just happened, and I had to, go, I had to go back and read it again. Mm-hmm. And the the more I've studied her work, um, I borrow a lot of courage f- from her. Um, cuz O'Connor wasn't afraid to write tough fiction right, and yeah. she, and she doesn't hold your hand she, she 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 doesn't tell you what she's trying to do no she does respect your intelligence intelligence not that you, that you will figure it out eventually and sometimes with with the more m- mystical scenes i feel like i'm close to a blinding light mm-hmm. which I'm, i i think was 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 part of her intention and then i feel like i can't can't quite see what was going on i, I and i had have to, t- to take a, a few steps back um, also just, just the way she wrote about violence, uh, for a, a woman who, who lived as quiet a life as she did, she didn't miss a trick.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it's, um,
2: no, she, she was just brave. And, uh, I, I, um, th- there's also a, 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 a bit of a, a personal modeling after, uh, of course she had a horrific, um case of lupus as an, yeah. as an autoimmune disease mm, yeah. and uh, I just I, I love reading about how, how she dealt with, with with her crotches how she dealt with with, with her hip pain which which uh, I've, I've I've got as well <laughs> not the lupus from another <laughs> an, uh, another condition mm-hmm. and um, of course she lived much longer than her initial pro- prognosis was yeah. but at some point somebody asked her how she felt knowing that the lupus was going to kill her she said well I've had a long time to used to the idea <laughs> I just say, yeah, yeah, you've been thinking about this as a lot oh, yeah. that's a great answer yeah. it is a
1: great answer
0: yeah. Yeah. thank you so much, I've really enjoyed this conversation it's great to talk about books with you and as always, uh, there will be show notes posted if you go to my website, TrudyMorganCole.com and click on the Shelf of Steam link you can see the show notes for this episode where I will list every book that we have discussed in this conversation and also links to uh, Joanne's books and to Michelle's books so you can read some of their works Thank
1: you so much. Thank
0: you. That wraps up my conversation with Joanne Soper-Cook and Michelle Butler-Hallett. And I'm looking forward to having another great pair of guests in next month if everything works out. Until then, read a good book and build your shelf esteem.